let me invite you this morning to uh, take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter number 4. Looking forward to diving into the Word of God this morning. And uh, our text this morning is going to be from verse 7. And we'll come down through verse number 11. And the title of the message this morning is Christ's Gifts to the Church. Christ's Gifts to the Church. And so let's read our text and we'll dive into it. We've been coming through the book of Ephesians verse by verse and uh, seeing what the Lord has given us in this book. And what a wonderful book it's been. I've enjoyed uh, the study and I I pray that it has been a blessing and benefit to you as well. And uh, may it help us and edify us here today too. Ephesians 4 beginning verse number 7. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And as you'll find, this text continues as we look next week at what all of this is about and what these gifts and callings are for. But I want us to focus on verse 7 down through verse number 11 to begin with. Has any of us ever received a gift? Well, the answer to that would be yes, right? We've all received gifts of some sort, often We find that uh, the special days warrant gifts such as birthdays and Christmas. Uh, Some gifts are uh, given on days like Mother's Day and Father's Day. Some gifts are better than others. Some gifts we ask for while others we had no clue about. It might have been a surprise to us. Some gifts are very useful and helpful that we receive. Then there are some gifts that are just useless. You don't do much with them. We've probably all received some of them. But in every case, the gift received was given by someone else for a purpose, right? And even if you don't like the gift or use the gift, Scripture speaks much about the analogy of gifts. And what we find is that the salvation we receive, what is it? It is the gift of God, right? Ephesians 2.8, what did Paul write in our text we studied not long ago? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. And this gift of salvation gives us or imparts to us eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is an indescribable gift. But is salvation the end of God's giving to His people? Is there more to God's gift than just eternal life? You see, God not only gives people the gift of salvation, He also gifts them in the realm of service. This is what Paul is touching on in this text as he's dealing with the church. Now, what was Paul's focus upon thus far in this chapter? In verse 1 through 6, we looked at last week, he emphasizes the unity that the people of God have as believers. Every believer has a sevenfold foundation of unity, as you see in verse 4 through 6. 
One Lord, one Spirit, one hope, one Father, one uh, faith, one baptism, uh, one body. And so this unity that we see is created by the Trinity with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, being the picture, the perfect picture of unity, that they are one, and as Jesus prayed, that his people also would be one. So this unity that we possess is not our own doing, it is God's doing, but here's where we come to a new transition. Unity, understand, does not mean uniformity. In other words, that means though we are unified as one people, we are not all identically the same. We're not identically the same, and that is a good thing, right? I mentioned how boring it would be if the church was totally filled with me's, right, of Joseph's. It'd be boring. We wouldn't want a bunch of me's in here, right? We wouldn't want a bunch of you's. So, so God has created us unique, right, where we all have, have different things about us that God has made in us that makes us individually unique in our Christian life. But not only in that in just a, a human standpoint, but God also gifts Christians uniquely by giving them diverse abilities and roles and responsibilities within the church. Now, Paul is connecting the unity of believers to the uniqueness of believers. And I want us to see the uniqueness of believers and how Christ gifts believers in his church for the purpose of serving and worshiping him. Notice with me, number one, in our notes here this morning, I want you to see firstly that these gifts are given to believers individually. They are given to believers individually. Notice that that Paul points out a few things here just in verse number 7 by itself, but the chief thing I want to show you is that these gifts are given by God's providence, by His own providence, by His own pleasure and will to His people. We notice in verse 7 that Paul begins with, but, that is a transition of Paul's thoughts, but it's still connected to what he just said about unity. Though we have an unbreakable bond in Christ and are united together as one people in Christ, there is a uniqueness among us to which he says here, but unto every one of us is given grace. Now, what is this grace that Paul is speaking of. When we think of grace and we speak of grace, we most commonly are thinking of saving grace, right? Grace is is the Greek term charis here, and it, it refers to an undeserved or unmerited favor that God has bestowed upon an individual. And that, friend, is how we're saved. But we're not saved by our own doing, by our own good works. It'd be impossible for us to be saved that way. Grace is the only way any of us are saved. It's undeserved, and it is unearned on us. But here in this context, Paul uses grace in a different manner. The Greek lexicon here refers to it as a practical application of goodwill. So Paul is referencing a special grace, a gift, something that is other than saving grace. Now, the saving grace we receive is foundational to this special grace that we're talking about because you will not have the gift of service in any capacity in the body of Christ without first knowing the saving grace of God. No person will have any, any, any of uh, such sort of thing. 
But what is this special grace Paul is talking about? It is a divine gift or calling given to the believer and cultivated in them for the purpose of serving in and among the church. Now, Paul used grace this way already as we come th- came through chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 8, look at what Paul says there in your Bible. He says, To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What grace is Paul talking about? He's talking about his gift and calling to be the minister, the apostle, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's not talking specifically about a salvation, although that is the foundation. This grace he's talking about is in the realm of serving the Lord. So this is the truth of the Christian life. And I want us all to understand this because this first subpoint may take a little time, but this is the foundation for all the rest. It will flow from there. Here's the truth for the Christian life. The grace that saves us also enables us to serve Christ. The same grace that saves us also enables us to serve Christ. This grace is the enabling power that makes the special gifts function to the glory of God. Now, here's what I want you to see, too. In verse 7, who is this special grace for serving given to? Every one of us. Every one of us. Paul says to every one of us. What does that show us? It shows us the individual nature of what God does in enabling His people in the church. And here's the reality, Christian. Every believer is called to serve the Lord, not just some believers. Every believer is called to serve the Lord... Not just some believers. Every Christian is enabled to serve in some way and capacity for the Lord. How do we know this? Well, here Paul says that this special grace has been given to who? Every one of us. And guess what, Christian? If you are truly born again, you have the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you at all times. At all times. Every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them and has a uniqueness to their own knowledge and ability in serving the Lord. Now, Paul, Peter also speaks in, in common terms here of a varied grace or diversified gifts in the church for individuals. First Peter 4, and verse 10 through 11. Notice this in your notes. He says, As each, see that each, that's the individual's, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace or diversified gifts. That's what that means. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what do you see that these gifts are used for? Well, firstly, you notice that they're to each one. But there's a twofold purpose to these gifts that Peter marks out and that Paul also will mark out. The first one is to serve one another. The church is a place of serving others, not ourselves. 
We don't gather here for me. We don't gather here for you. We gather here for the Lord and for others. The church is not about me, myself, and I. It's about Christ and His people. So the first reason here is to serve another. But notice also that Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is why He equips His people to serve in and through the local church. You see, the good of God's people and the glory of God are the reason that Christ gifts and enables individuals with this grace. And here, friend, I'm going to point this out, that this is an often lacking area in the local church. Because often the service of the local church comes down to just a few who are doing all the work. Every single one of us are called to serve in some capacity. And I will say this from my own experience in times past. Nearly every church I've been in, it's been this way. That the large load of work always falls on a few. And you know what happens after some time of that, that being the case? Those few who are carrying the large load of work, they get burnt out. And that is one reason why many Christians, they fall by the way, say, I'm done, I've been doing everything. Nobody's helping, right? Now, I'm not bringing this as any kind of condemnation on Lee Creek or anything. This is just a general principle of, of local church life. Every Christian is called to serve in some way. All of us have been called to serve in some way. And so understand that Paul is making this point very clear, that every single one of us has been given this grace according to Christ's gift. Now, we need to examine ourselves in this manner. Now, when we think of the various kinds of gifts, I think we could recognize some categories of gifts when it comes to the church and people. Firstly, I would say there are natural gifts. These are abilities that God gives individuals Naturally, they, are not re- they do not require regeneration to be able to have this ability, right? Uh, for, for example, singing or playing an instrument or maybe you have knowledge about a specific area uh, that is very helpful. Those do not depend on regeneration. There's good singers who are not born again. But by all means, our natural abilities that God has given us should be used for the glory of God in His church. There's also spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are uniquely given to us by God for spiritual applications. And you see examples of these in the scriptures. Things like teaching and uh, uh, exhortation and encouragement, hospitality. These are spiritual gifts that God gives to his people. But then there are also what we read in scripture of miraculous gifts. Miraculous gifts which are no longer operable today by the way. They served a unique purpose in the early church. Things such as tongues and healings and, uh, uh, and prophesying and those sorts of things. So there's different categories and areas in which we see gifts within the church in the New Testament. But no matter what gift a believer may have, where has it come from? It has come from the Lord. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? It comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So whatever kind of gift one may have, natural or spiritual, we must recognize where it came from. It came from the Lord. It came from the Lord. So whatever it is that God has gifted you with, 
you ought to be thinking, how can I use this for Christ? Because every aspect of life is meant to be used for the glory of Christ. All the way down to your eating and drinking. The very most minuscule things you could think of is to be used for the glory of Christ. Notice another reference here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4 through 7, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you can get the picture with this. Notice that Paul says that this grace was given to us specifically according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what does this mean? You know what this shows us? It shows us that Christ, in giving his gifts to individuals, that he has the sovereign choice of doing that. He's sovereign, providential, over who he gifts with what gift and ability. The giver alone has the right to determine what he gives and to whom he will give it. Whatever gift we may possess, understand, that is according to the pleasure of God. Now, I want to read a reference here that I think will better expound this. In Romans 12, verse 3 through 8 for a moment, this kind of touches on what Paul has just mentioned briefly in one verse, but it's the foundation of what he's going to say through the rest of this time. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 through verse 8 for a moment. Notice this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You see his usage of grace there. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, in, our, in the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Right there you have some plain gifts that Paul lays out, some of them that are still functioning in the church today. But you'll notice about this text that Paul says God has given each one according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice that this word for faith is not saving faith. It's used in the same way grace is used in the realm of being gifted this for a purpose. It refers to faith in exercising our spiritual gift and ability God's given us. So, so the sum of this is that God gives both the grace and the faith to energize whatever gift he gives to the full intent of his purpose. And because God has given as it pleases him, here's what Paul calls on them to do in that verse, verse 3. He calls on them to not think of himself, not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And this is so important for the local church. There is no Christian that is better than another Christian. 
no matter what you've been gifted with. For every Christian has been sovereignly given their saving grace and sovereignly given their serving grace. So so it doesn't matter in what way you may serve the church, every single one of us are one body functioning together. One is not better than the other. You'll notice in verse 4 through 5 that he says that we are one body functioning differently but together in the same service. What does this teach us? Since God sovereignly gives each individual as he sees fit, there is no room for pride about your gift or calling, and there is also no room for jealousy of another's gift or calling. Now, this often happens. That, well, I wish, wish I could do what so-and-so could do. Maybe you ought to just think, what has God given me to do? Because it's not about what so-and-so could do. Remember when, when, when Peter asked the Lord about John, he said, what, 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 what shall this man do? Because Jesus had said, he'll remain till, till he sees my coming. And Peter said, what will this man do? What did Jesus say? It doesn't matter what he's called to do, you follow me. You follow me. The individual nature, you follow me. Ian Hamilton rightly says this, to envy another Christian's grace gifts is to question the wisdom of Christ. Rather than envying another's gifts, we should seek prayerfully to develop and mature whatever gifts the Lord has been pleased to give us. And I think he summarizes that well. Because not everyone will have a gift that's going to get them a whole lot of recognition. In fact, there's a lot of gifts in the church that don't get any recognition. Perhaps your gift is simply that of encouragement. You encourage someone here and there. But you don't get notice for that. You may not realize it, but that's one of the most important gifts you can have is encouragement in the local church. I just give that one for an example. So, so gifts, understand, they're not meant for our own recognition. They're only meant for Christ's exaltation and the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. So we should praise God for whatever ways He gives His people and pray about how He might use us in, the same, in, a, in, the, in a gifted way too. Now, he goes on to say in verse 6 through 8 of Romans to mention some specific gifts and some, some they ought to exercise by faith. These gifts that we see, they may not always be immediately recognized either or refined. Often it takes spiritual growth and maturity for these gifts to really show forth their fruit. Neither does every believer who has the same gift have the same measure in exercising that gift. For example... There may be two people who are gifted to teach, but those two teachers are not going to be identical. They're not going to be identical in that ability. John MacArthur rightly says this, We each have a gift that is measured out to us with certain distinct capabilities, parameters, and purposes. And that is true. You know, when you think about any sort of functioning body, organism, or team, someone has to fill the role, right? I played basketball, so that was, that was my sport. Somebody had to be the point guard. That was usually me. Somebody had to be the shooting guard. Somebody had to be the small forward, the power forward, the center, the coach, the bench, the replacement players. Someone has to fill all those roles. One's not better than the other. The object is a team game, right? A team game. And so Christ, understand this, is sovereign over every detail in the gifting of his people. Nevertheless, 
Every believer is given a measure of special grace for the purpose of serving the Lord and edifying the local church. This is providential. Notice with me letter B. I told you that was the longest point, so let's come through the next ones. These gifts are given according to God's prophecy. This was foretold, in a way, in the Old Testament. If you look at Ephesians chapter number 3 again, or 4 and verse 8, you'll notice that Paul says, Therefore it says, being the Scriptures, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul here is quoting Psalm 68 and verse 18, which says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, do you notice a difference in what Paul says and what the psalmist says? Paul says that Christ gave gifts to men, but the psalmist says that this king has received gifts among men in his exaltation. There's a reason for this, and I had to kind of dig out what it was. But in short, Psalm 68 overall celebrates God's triumphant march from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and his enthronement there where he would be, that would be his place of worship. Paul regards this as prefiguring Christ's victorious ascent into heaven. And so by saying you ascended on high, Paul is giving the picture of the triumphant Christ returning from battle on earth unto his home in victory. And with Christ's return from this glorious battle... Notice that he says, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This gives us a scene of ancient conquerors is what it's doing. Often in the ancient world, you'll read this in the Old Testament. You look at the conquering of Joshua and David and some of the Israelites. A king or or a people would conquer uh, another people after plundering their enemy. And they would return with captives, showing forth their victory. In that procession, there would be prisoners of war bound before the people. These captives, what Paul's saying here, point us to Christ's victory over his enemies. And who are the enemies that Christ has conquered? He has conquered sin, Satan, all the demonic forces of darkness, and death itself. He has taken the enemy captive. Not only has he taken them captive and victory over them, Christ has conquered them and spoiled them. He has ruined them. He has spoiled them of of, 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 uh, all they are. Not only would the conqueror in the ancient times show the captives in his possession, but also the bounty that he took from that conquering. So these spoils or the riches that the king won had been received to himself as the psalmist pins. But these spoils also in ancient time would often be distributed among the people that he conquered on behalf of. And so thus Paul ties that together in saying Christ gave gifts unto men with this conquering. With the victory that Christ won, Paul applies this psalm to Jesus who is enriched by his victory and blesses his people from that victory. Now this may allude to the day of Pentecost when we see the Spirit of God poured out upon the church empowering her for ministry. Acts 2.33, Peter kind of connect, makes this connection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So there's this connection of His exaltation, receiving glory, and His pouring it out on His people. 
And so Paul has applied this wonderful psalm to the victory Christ won, giving him, Christ, the right to give gifts to his people for the purpose of his church and his kingdom. Now, as you come down to the next couple verses, they are a parenthesis in which Paul expounds a little bit about this psalm. So, number two this morning, notice that gifts are given because of Christ's victory. Because of Christ's victory. And we notice there's this descent and there's this ascent that he points out. But I want to point out to you with regard to this that Christ's incarnation is his descension for victory. Christ's incarnation is his descension for victory. Now, now, given the prophecy that Paul quotes, he shows how that victory of spoil came about and the right to Jesus. This parenthetical statement here in verse 9, Paul says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? What's Paul talking about here? He's referencing the fact that in order for Christ to ascend to glory, he first had to have descended to the earth. First had to descend. He's descended to the lower regions, the earth. Now, some take that to mean the below the earth, the place of Sheol, where the spirits of the dead were known to dwell in the Old Testament, before the redemptive work of the cross. This place was known as a, a compartment in, in Jewish understanding with paradise, and then you have hell. And Jesus gives somewhat of some imagery of that Luke 16 with the rich man who went to hell and then the Lazarus who went to Abraham's bosom. There was a gulf fixed between them. And, and so some try to say that this is the, that when Jesus descended, that he had gone down into paradise, which, which is technically true, but I don't think that's what, what Paul is referencing. I think that Paul right here is, is talking about the earth in general as the far lower place than heaven. So Christ's ascension to the earth is his incarnation, his becoming a man to live out his life in this cursed world in order to bring us victory. Now, what did Jesus say all through his ministry that got him in trouble? He said, I came from heaven. I came from above. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says again in John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Right there, Jesus is testifying the very truth that Paul's saying. I came from heaven. I'm going back up there. The reason he's come to earth is for a purpose. And that purpose was that Christ came to bring redemption, to redeem his people and his creation to himself from sin and Satan. Friend, this is the gospel that the infinite glorious Lord stepped into humanity on behalf of sinners like you and I. Were it not for what Christ did, you and I are hell bound with no hope. That's what our sin rightly deserves. But instead, Christ in his humility, what did he do? Paul speaks of this in Philippians 2, in verse 6 through 8. Christ's humiliation here is so staggering to me. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That text is entirely too deep for us to expound in this one moment. The humility that Christ manifests in leaving heaven to take on human form. That's what he means by emptied himself. He gave himself over to human form without being, while, while being 100% God, yet he was also 100% human. And in his humanity, he submitted himself to dying when he did not have to, and he did not deserve to, to die in the place of sinners like you and I. Friend, Christ's death on the cross, at first sight, considering the apostles and those in that day who experienced seeing that and hearing it, Christ's death on the cross seemed to be a great failure. Here's this Messiah who has power to raise the dead, and now he's dead. What now? What now? It appeared to be a great failure, a great unforeseen tragedy to those who saw it. But the death of Christ was intentional, for it was the only way. His death on the cross, his bloodshed, it was the only way that victory could actually be won for us. Which brings us to letter B. We see that Christ's exaltation is His ascension and victory. And we think of Christ ascending into heaven, but yet He died on earth. One who is dead cannot ascend into heaven, right? But what does Paul say in verse 10? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Now a point that by all the heavens, Paul's referring to the highest place, the very dwelling abode of God, where heaven itself is said to be. Now the Jews reference different layers of heaven, the heavens, right? You have the atmosphere, then you have the space and the stars, regions of the stars, and then on beyond all of creation, you have the abode of God. Paul is said to have been caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. And so by all the heavens... Paul is talking about the entirety of the universe, all that is created, that Christ is ascended up into the abode of God where heaven itself is, above all places and above all powers. But how could such a thing be for someone who is dead, right? We know the answer to how this plays out. You see, Christ, who died perfectly on behalf of sinners, was raised from death with power and glory, overcoming, overcoming all enemies that have opposed Him and His people. Friend, the cross looked like a defeat when actually it was the greatest victory ever known. The greatest victory ever known. You know why it's the greatest victory ever known? Because Jesus died to atone for sin, something none of us could ever do. He died in our place to pay the penalty that we could never pay ourselves, but we're accountable to pay. And with his death and his blood shed, soon to come would be the resurrection, in which would be the defeat of all the forces of darkness and death. It was inevitable. 
And here's what Paul says of the work of Christ. And notice this, Colossians 2.15. This ties into the psalm that he's quoting. Speaking of Christ, he says, He disarmed or spoiled the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Friend, all of hell rejoices that Christ is dead, but then comes resurrection day, and we find that the king is risen, that there is no force that could hold him down. There is no enemy that could defeat him. And so Christ is risen from the dead and shown forth that he is the triumphant king that has overcome every enemy that could be. And with his victory, he has also plundered the goods of the enemy. Jesus put it this way in speaking of the kingdom that he brought in Luke eleven twenty one through 22. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the psalm is about that Paul is quoting from. And this is what Christ has done. He has come into Satan's world and spoiled it, taken it back from him as his own. And so his kingdom now prevails and pervades all of the earth and will continue to do so. It cannot be stopped, friend. This is what Christ has done to Satan. 1 John 3, 8, the Apostle John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Calvin comments on this also and says, He has not only gained a complete victory over the devil and sin and death and all the power of hell, but out of rebels, he forms every day a willing people when he subdues by his word the obstinacy of our flesh. Because here's the reality, friend. There's so many people in this world that they don't want anything to do with Christ. They hear the gospel message and it just falls on deaf ears because man's natural inclination is to say, no, God, I don't want you. But here's what Christ does. He, by his own power, changes them, calls them, regenerates them, gives them a new heart, making them willing, showing forth his power over them. And so with Christ's victory over death and the spoiling of Satan, he has ascended on high to the most glorious place of authority. We read this previously in Ephesians 1, and I'll recap it real briefly. Ephesians 1, 20 and 23, where Paul already mentions this. He speaks of the gospel working of Christ, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friend, that text manifests the exhaustive authority of Christ in his ascension to glory. There's not anything or anyone to which he does not have power over. Calvin comments again on this passage. It says, the noblest triumph which God has ever gained, was when Christ, after subduing sin, 
conquering death and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church. And so Paul says in our text, in verse number 8 again, or excuse me, verse number 9. No, verse number 10. Keep coming with me, I'm getting there. Notice that he's exalted far above all the heavens, the highest place possible. Why? That he might fill all things. There's a purpose of his reign. There's a purpose of his authority. And it is that he will fill creation with his presence and power through his kingdom. Here's the reality, Christian. He owns it all. He purchased it all with his blood. And he presently reigns over it all. I love this quote by Abraham Kuyper. It's a glorious one. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine, mine. It's his, his kingdom. His kingdom is the only kingdom that will have victory in time and eternity because he has full authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Just as he said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, he said to his church, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And based on that authority, he says, go and make disciples of the nations. Go. There's not any place where we're not to go because he has authority over it all. So Christ has full authority over his church to gift individuals for the purpose of carrying out that great commission and establishing and building up healthy churches. Now notice with me number three, we come to this last verse, that gifts are given to the church corporately. Gifts are given individually, we find in verse 7, gifts are given because of Christ's victory. That's the reason we receive gifts and have these enablements to serve Him the way we do, because of what Christ has done. But notice that these gifts are given to the church corporately as well. These are specially gifted offices that serve the whole of the church in the local body. Now, notice the first one. The Lord gave apostles to the church. The offices that Paul brings here to the attention of the Ephesians, understand they're not for every believer. Even though every believer is gifted in some way, these offices are not just anybody can just claim to be one of these. These offices were very significant for the early church, and we'll find some of them are still significant in the means in which God uses today. But to begin with in verse 11, notice that Paul says, and he gave the apostles. We see the gave language, right? This is, this is only Christ's right to give this. It's not right for any, no, nobody can just claim, I'm going to be an apostle. Christ must give it, right? The office of apostle is mentioned first for a reason. It's foundational to the church from the early days of Christ. Now, Paul already made that clear in chapter 2 and verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Well, what is an apostle? The word apostle simply refers to messengers with extraordinary status. Some, some would say it in a simpler way, someone who is sent. Put it that way. Jesus is said to have been our apostle and high priest in Hebrews 3.1. He was sent of the Father. In one sense, we could say we're apostles, that we are sent ones, right? 
But Paul doesn't have that in mind, that simple definition. He's talking about a specified office. A specified office to which none of us can claim. None of us. The office of apostle belonged to those who were chosen specifically by Christ for the early church. Now we see Jesus choosing this people in this office earlier in his ministry. Mark 3.14, he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So you understand as you look through scripture, the office of apostle, it was not just for anyone, there are some stipulations to it. And I think you see three characteristics of the apostles. An apostle, firstly, was directly chosen by Christ for the office. An apostle had to have experience with Christ on earth. An apostle had to have seen the resurrected Christ after the resurrection. These things give an apostle his authority. Now, we can see this in the twelve, except for Judas. He was canceled. We know that he was lost, the son of perdition. We see this with Matthias, as the church chose him by the Lord's will in their vote. We see this in Paul, who was specially a chosen vessel, who saw the Lord and was called specifically by the Lord, ordained an apostle by Jesus himself. And I will note, I believe that Paul, by his special revelations, experienced much with Christ that many of the apostles did not, almost like a catch-up to him in the ministry of Christ. But here's what you'll find is that the apostles carried the authority for communicating the gospel and establishing the church in truth in those early days. Some of them were inspired writers of the New Testament. They were also gifted with miraculous signs and wonders to confirm the word of God they preached. In fact, this was a confirmation of who was an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This was how they were to tell who really is an apostle. This was one sign to them. Who is a true apostle? Now, the danger of that time of the early church was men who claimed to be apostles but were not. Now, men always have wanted power and recognition, don't they? In that day, what better way to do that than to put apostle in front of your name? Apostle Joseph. Well, I'd get a lot of attention if I did that, wouldn't I? Wouldn't be good attention. Wouldn't be good attention. Paul warned of this. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This was a problem in the early church. Jesus commended the Ephesians, the church letter we're studying, later for their discernment on who was a true apostle. Revelation 2.2 says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, believe it or not, Christian, there's still some today that will say, oh, I'm an apostle of Christ. I worked at Kroger for few years my early early days and there was a lady local there that she would come in and she claimed to be an apostle of Christ I didn't do this but I want to ask her when did you see the risen Jesus been a long time since that so here's what we learn about the apostles the the office of apostle was limited to the first generation of the early church for a specific purpose John the apostle was the last one and when he died that office ceased 
So the apostles, we find, they were crucial to the early church, and these men were given this office for the sake of the church. We look back at the apostles with great gratitude. Notice with me, letter B, the Lord gave prophets to the church. Go with me to Acts 11. You'll see an example of the prophets here just for a moment. But he gave prophets. This also was a specially significant calling. We see prophets in the Old Testament we're familiar with, but there are also prophets during the early church era. In Acts 11, in verse 27, you'll notice that now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, this, this, so, so the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Right there you see a function of prophets. Foretelling by inspiration of God that there would be a famine, and their knowledge and word is given to help the saints for that famine that would come. So the office of a prophet, the prophets involved the ministry, involved preaching and teaching the word and the church. Sometimes they would reveal a new word from God, as in this text about the coming famine. Other times they would have expounded revelation already given from the Lord. See, the prophets differ in the New Testament from the apostles in their inspiration. It was occasional and not always. They were subordinate to the apostles. And it seems that the prophets often had exclusive work within local congregations, whereas apostles ministered throughout all different regions for the church. Acts 13.1 shows us prophets in the church at Antioch. But here's what we find. Both the apostles and prophets were used in the ministry of revealing the word of God. Both of these offices are no longer needed today. Why? Because we have the complete written revelation of God's word. We do not need... A new word from God, we have the word from God. So so understand the importance of this recognition. Those who claim to be prophets today do so to their own embarrassment. Many try to give a new word from God and make grand predictions only to discredit themselves. guy I was following on social media made, made several videos as a prophet declaring the rapture will happen in the month of September. Guess what? September's gone. He embarrassed himself. See, true prophets were given a word from God for the good of his people. And these prophets were foundational in Ephesians 2.20 also with the apostles to the church, but they are no longer needed today. Let her see the Lord gives evangelists to the church. The Lord gives evangelists to the church. Paul mentions Christ gave evangelists. Now, there's some debate as to what this office entails, but there's two primary views. The first view is that evangelists, Paul's referencing, was, were temporary officers in the church that helped the apostles in the preaching ministry. Now, that view was a, a view that prevailed during the time of the Reformation. It's still held by some today. But the second view is that evangelists were itinerant preachers, some similar to missionaries sent out to preach the gospel of Christ where Christ had not been made known. In fact, the word evangelist simply means to be a proclaimer of the gospel. It only occurs three times in your New Testament. Once here, once in Acts 21.8 about Philip, and once in 2 Timothy 4.5 where Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, preaching the gospel, ministering the gospel. Whether or not the office was limited to the days of the apostles and a special aid to them or not, 
the principle of being a proclaimer of the gospel reigns true today. And there are men that God calls to do that full time, it seems. The church needs gifted men preaching the gospel where Christ is not known to preach him among the world around us courageously and boldly. Though they may not be bound to a church to pastor, that they are still out there proclaiming the good news. Letter D, and lastly, the Lord gives pastors and teachers to the church. You'll notice that Paul says in verse 11, Christ has given shepherds and teachers. The word for shepherds is also translated pastors. It's the same word here. And this office, Christ has established as the overseer of the local church. In the scriptures, you're going to see the term bishops and elders and pastors or shepherds. They're all the same office. Here they're called shepherds because that is what they do. They shepherd the flock, the local church of Christ's sheep. It emphasizes the care and protection and leadership of the man of God for the flock. Peter encourages the elders in his letter in 1 Peter 5, 1-4 about taking oversight and being diligent to do it and having the right motive. I won't read it for time's sake, but go read that later. Paul says to the Ephesian elders before he leaves them in Acts 20 and verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So when we think of the nature of a shepherd, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares for the flock of sheep. In the realm of the local church, he cares for them by loving them, ministering to them, leading them, and above all, feeding them them. How is it that the flock of God is fed through the preaching and teaching of the word of God? This is the primary means of caring for the flock. You'll notice that the teachers here are not to be disconnected as a separate office from the shepherds. The Greek construction here indicates that the two terms go together where we might hyphenate them in English as the pastor teacher, the emphasis on the teaching and preaching ministry of the pastor as the shepherd. So Paul is talking about one office with dual responsibility. Now, there may be teachers in the church who are not pastors, but there are no pastors who are not teachers. This is one of the requirements of the office. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that they are to be able to teach. That's a requirement. And here's the reality. This is really where we see for today what the church needs It needs shepherds who faithfully feed them the word of the living God. Because that is what the church needs. It doesn't need entertainment. It doesn't need things to to, to get get you all excited and gung-ho and and hyper-emotional. The church needs the word of God. The church needs it desperately. That is the priority. So many flocks today are starving for nourishment of Scripture, but don't have it because of lazy or lifeless shepherds over them. I've seen it. By all means, by all God's grace, that will be my priority here, is to feed you faithfully the Word of God accurately. This is the labor for the sheep. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I can honestly attest that it is labor to do that. Contrary to popular belief, preachers don't work three hours a week. Or two. 
But here I hope from this text you see what Christ has done for the church. His gifts to the church. These offices that he gives here, they are appointed. They are not just attained. You don't just decide, oh, I just do this. It's a calling. You see, the church is in this world for a purpose. And Christ has gifted the church with all that she needs to fulfill that purpose. And that goes beyond just the offices that he places in the church, such as pastors or deacons. It goes down to every one of us, as verse 7 says. He has given to every one of us this grace according to the measurement of Christ's gift. So I ask all of us as Christians today, how has Christ gifted you and cultivated you in your Christian life? Are you using your life to serve the Lord in His church? Because that is what you have been called to do and be. Let us be the Christians Christ has gifted us to be. Let's stand to our feet as we have closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning, so thankful for this text of Scripture. So much was here to be covered, and certainly more could be given to these aspects that we've looked at. But with what we have seen and the time that we've had, what a blessing it is to be a Christian and to be used of you. Father, help us to understand that your grace that saved us does not save us only to go on our way and live our life as we want, but you have saved us for us to be changed, cultivated more into Christ's likeness. And as you wrote here, that we are called by this same grace to serve you. You have gifted your people with various kinds of abilities and gifts. And the imperative upon us is to use them for your glory and the good of your people. I pray that you would challenge us in this matter, that you would use us in this way. We ask it in Jesus' name.